Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan, here with my great friend, Johnny Mack, the author of the outstanding red hot book, The Qualified Sales Leader. My man, John McMahon. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Cap. I'm doing great, man. I'm really excited for our listeners today. They're definitely going to learn something from our special guest. Yeah, I am too. So, um, so Ann Gary is the former chief customer officer at Force Management. She's a skilled sales consultant and trainer with more than 20 years of experience in direct and channel sales, sales management, sales development, and sales operations. Uh, before joining Force Management, uh, Ann worked at PTC uh, with us knuckleheads, and uh, PTC was a leading software developer for content and product lifecycle management. She was responsible for developing the central uh, region, direct and uh, channel sales organization when PTC was a startup. So a uh, lot of stories about PTC, but great perspective from the beginning days. Um, she held several sales management positions, including regional director, global account manager, district manager, director, sales development operations. And then prior to joining PTC, she worked in marketing and engineering at Silicon Graphics, Daisy Systems, and General Electric. Um, Ann received a bachelor of science degree in electrical engineering from the University of Iowa. And Johnny, she is the only person that I know that turned down full ride scholarships to both Stanford and MIT. Wow. wow. Did you know that, Johnny? No, I had no idea. No. Yeah. Idea. And so I told, I told Ann before we got on, I, I asked her for her permission. I think that's just one of the, one of the coolest things I've never met anybody with that kind of now, now, as you both know, I myself had a lot of scholarship offers. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> none of them were academic. So, uh, right. so, and welcome hey. Welcome and, and uh, thank you for joining us. It's it's really really great to see you. Thank you. Well, this this will be a lot of fun. It, I, it, I, I'm, I'm looking the, forward to this. This will be like an old home week for sure. <laughs> again, Gary, you're one of the only people that I know besides myself that had an electrical engineering degree or was stupid enough to go get try to get one, <laughs> <laughs> and then you know found some sanity and eventually went into sales. And I, and I forgot that you worked at Daisy Systems back then. Yeah, actually, I was in, I was in marketing at Daisy. So it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, John talks about all the different positions. And, um, you know, they all, they all prepared me to be in sales because I know what all these functional groups, you know, are going through when they work with the sales organization. So I'm, I'm glad I actually had that experience. But to your point about electrical engineering, I always tell people, I'm an electrical engineer, but I couldn't wire a switch if I wanted to. So, yeah, I have the, I have the degree, 
but um, I haven't used that in a while. So yeah. and we I myself you know, I got out of college and you know had electrical engineering degree. That, so then everybody wanted me to fix their computer. Can you come in my house? I got an electrical problem. My refrigerator's broke. Can you help me? I'm like, I don't know how to do any of that. See, stuff. Johnny, that's why I didn't go into engineering. It was really simple. I don't want people to ask me to fix stuff. <laughs> that was actually a sign <laughs> of intelligence that you didn't go into engineering. <laughs> hey, uh, and I, on that vein, Ann, let's talk a little bit about your, you have such an unbelievable background with a diverse background. And, and uh, Johnny, I don't know whether you know this, but Ann actually trained me uh, at PTC. And I was in a class with, with Rysick and some people that went on to do some, uh, Chris Rysick, people went on to do some just absolutely fantastic things. But Ann, let's start, let's kick this off and talk a little bit about this engineering background finding your way to PTC. Um, and how did, how did you kind of jump from engineering into sales? How did that, how did that manifest itself? Okay. Well, so, you know, you talked about GE and Daisy systems and all. So I worked in product design and realized pretty quickly that I was more people oriented than product design in terms of I'm writing software. It's not talking to me. I want to actually have a more you know, social relationship in my job. So I moved into marketing from that point. And I was in marketing and engineering companies. So it was, you know, it was a natural move. And in marketing, I worked for the VP of marketing at Aunt Daisy. And he kept saying, you know, you should really go into sales. You should really go into sales. This is when I was in California. And, and Daisy was a, a startup as well at that point. And I'm like, I'm watching all the salespeople. I'm thinking, you know, I probably could be pretty good at that. But I didn't do anything with it. Then I moved to Silicon Graphics. And at Silicon Graphics, I was responsible for basically bringing in companies, software companies that would run on the SGI platform. So yep. there was this portfolio of, of companies that um, obviously would help SGI sell their hardware. And lo and behold, I met with a, a, a fellow named Dick Harrison, who oh my uh, this is how I met Dick. So I'm, I'm sitting in this conference room with Dick Harrison talking about how it would be great if he would actually pour pro engineer onto SGI because we're a graphic system, you know, P, PTC pro engineer, for those of you who don't know, this is a solid modeling system, really graphics heavy. And so uh, I was selling Dick on why um, we should do this. And he actually called me a few weeks later and said, you know, you should, have you really thought about going into sales? So I guess I had been in sales for a while between the marketing and the SGI. And that's when um, I moved from the West Coast out of Silicon Valley to the Midwest and started with, with PTC. So that's how I moved into sales. But a lot of and people- did you, did you start on the, did you start in the sales organization at PTC? Did you come up through like application engineering or was there a blend at the time? Cause it was at, that's like, that's startup days. Yeah. So I was, I think I was the 25th employee at PTC. If I, if wow. I recall, right. I might be off by a couple, but anyway, I came into sales. There, there was no sales in the Midwest. Um, Dick had recruited a few people. And so I came in and actually developed the central part of the United States with 18 States and a couple Canadian provinces having not, carried a bag. I mean, I was not, I was just, he, he saw the, the capability. So when there were a couple of bars that had signed up, but, um, but yeah, it was building the entire Midwest sales team. And you were, so you're faced with um, 
first time into sales, but really kind of under really getting sales. Mm-hmm. Now you're leading. You got to open up a new geography in the startup. Like walk us through, like you got to recruit, you got to understand the product. You got to like walk us through. How'd you get it started? And how'd you grow it? You know, that's a great question. If I were to think back, I'm not even sure I could remember how I did all that. But but some of the things that come to mind are, you know, we had a couple of bars already. So the first thing was to really understand what what are the business problems we're trying to solve with this, right? We were selling into engineering organizations. And at that time, there were a bunch of drafters that, you know, were, were using other competitive systems. So it was kind of understanding what are we solving uh, what does the territory look like in terms of where are the hot spots, right, for something like this? Um, having the couple of bars there already helped me to get up to speed pretty quickly on the types of companies using it, because one of them was up in Milwaukee, big manufacturing area. So I was able to learn from that. And then, you know, from that point, it was just a matter of going out and looking for, you talk about building in terms of the organization, was looking for people who had similar background to mine. So the first few people I hired did have engineering backgrounds. So they understood how to call in that kind of environment, but also had curiosity and you know, the desire to learn about the business problems as well. So it was looking for those kinds of people. We started out, you know, I was in Chicago. We put an office in Minneapolis. We put an office in St. Louis, one down in uh, Dallas. Again, more manufacturing hotspots. So, but yeah, I was, I mean, I was drinking from a fire hose. No doubt about it. <laughs> Johnny, I, can't I know tell you that I had a, a big it's plan. It was picking it up. Yeah. What's interesting is you basically described what you did, you know, where you looked for the hotspots, the companies in the area, and what business problems you were solving. You basically are describing an ideal customer profile. I mean, so many people go out there and start to think, I got a product, I got 18 states, every company's going to buy this product, right? Instead of truly focusing on what business problems you solve. You know, what companies have that problem? Who's the person inside the account I got to get to? You know, really thinking that through, which is what you did. And that was your, uh, some of your engineering background, which made you probably think and analyze a lot more. No doubt about it. There, I mean, I think if you, if you think about engineering, I mean, what are the advantages of engineering, right? In, in a position like this? Well, for the disadvantage, I'll talk about the disadvantage first. Disadvantage is you try to learn too much about the product and all the features, and you get bogged down with that. The advantage is you have, you know, the problem-solving skills, the reasoning pattern recognition skills to be able to apply into something like this. So, you know, there's, there's goods and bads with the background that I had going into that kind of role as well. Yeah. Well, you always amaze me with your ability to listen carefully, then qualify deeply. <laughs> you really asked a lot of questions. <laughs> qualify, qualify, qualify. And then what I found about you is that you then seem to like internalize what you heard. You'd be like, hmm. And when I heard the Ann Gary, hmm, I knew, oh boy, she's internalizing this. But then what would happen is, unlike most people, you would actually adapt to the situation, you know? So if you think about the salespeople you've seen, not only at PTC, but throughout your career, what characteristics do you think really mm-hmm. separated the good salespeople from the great salespeople? Well, that's pretty easy, actually. I mean, if I were to say one word, it's curiosity, right? I mean, just being a naturally curious person. To your point about asking questions, I mean, I was on a golf course one day and I was asking this woman I was playing with a lot of questions and she basically said, you know, can we just play golf? Because I'm... (laughs) 
I'm just really, I'm really naturally curious. I love learning about other people. I think that's another part. I just really enjoy learning about other people. And so I think curiosity is probably the, the biggest thing. Another thing that I think is really important is, is discipline. And I, so many people, you know, they keep trying to change things up all the time instead of just staying the course for a while. And John Mack, I think I learned a lot of that from you because you have a similar, you know, pick something that you know needs to be done, implement it, stay the course and see what happens. Because we know from engineering, again, this is a good thing from engineering is you don't change like 10, 12 variables and try to figure out what's working because you won't know. You change right. one variable and then you see how that, that plays out and you change another variable. So anyway, I strayed a little bit on that one, but that's, uh, that's, that's part of it. And then when you're interviewing someone, like you said, that yeah. you went and interviewed a number of people, you look for some knowledge. So you look mm -hmm. for engineering background. You looked for some characteristics and you said curiosity. How do you kind of pull that out of someone or mm. understand if they have that in, in the interview process? Mm, love that. So I, I think it starts off with what questions are they asking me? Right. If I'm the one sitting at the table asking all the questions and they're not coming back with any kind of interesting, well, tell me about that or help me understand this, then they're genuinely, I mean, they're not curious. Right. So I think that's, um, that's one thing in the, you know, in the interviewing process in terms of curiosity. Uh, I'm trying to think about other things. So I'll keep asking me, I'll, I'll think if there's anything. All right, else. Well, what was the most difficult thing about as a new manager in a new space about recruiting people? What was the most difficult thing in trying to recruit a really a, a plus team? Yeah. Well, you know, things have, things have changed maybe a lot from this perspective, but I mean, first of all, I'm in, we're in a startup, right? I mean, there's, there's 25 people at this company. So it's not like everybody was beating on the door. Hey, I want to change. And at that time, startups weren't necessarily where people wanted to go. Right. So now, you know, people want to move and, and move around. But at that point, you know, people were in their loyal 10, 18 year jobs. So that was, you know, that was difficult. Um, so, you know, as far as finding people, and, and I think, you know, Dick did a, a nice job with this when, when he brought me in is he wasn't looking for somebody particularly in the industry or knew exactly what to do. He was looking for the character, like you were talking about. Right. And so I was basically doing the same thing, looking for the character of the individual. Now you talk about skills and knowledge. I mean, Obviously, when I and as we grew, it was easier to interview for skills and knowledge as well. Oh, I want to go back to one thing. This is really important. You talk about interviewing process. Go for it. The um, probably the biggest thing for me when I was interviewing was to ask a salesperson about a you know a, a sale that they had been through recently, and I wanted to know about the political landscape. Mm -hmm. So I would ask them to go up to the board, draw the organization chart. And tell me who are the people that are the influencers in the situation, have them walk me through that. Because I thought it's easier to learn about you know, business knowledge and account knowledge. I mean, we can read about that. We can, especially now, we can get on the website and learn all about that. It's also easy to learn about some of the competitive knowledge. It's very difficult to understand whether someone can actually pick up the nuances of the politics in an account 
and right. who's influencing whom. So that was another, I'm going back to the interviewing process. I'll, I'll probably do this through this as something else will come up. No, so important because that's how you find a champion. You have to understand, you know, like we talked about many times, the difference between the organization chart where people have authority and the difference of the power chart and the people that have influence, right? And they can get you, they could be your champion. And those are the people that can get you to the economic buyer. So understanding that political landscape and how many people go into an account and they talk to the first person that talks to them and they, they place their entire sales process on that one person. Yeah. We would call them potentially a coach, right? Correct. But, and everybody, and you know, I spend a lot of time on opportunity reviews. I'm working with force management, obviously. And I can't tell you how many times I see people confusing coaches and champions. And, um, and this is another fun one. When you put the economic buyer as your champion, I would expect you probably have the deal, but they don't. So it's like, they're probably not the same people. Right, exactly. And what do hey, you think Johnny. is the biggest difference? Sorry, Johnny. Go just ahead, buddy. What, yep. said. what do you think is the number, the big difference or problem that ha people have in identifying who the real champion is versus a coach? Mm. Well, I mean, right now, let's back up. When we were able to go into a room and watch people and the dynamic, right? Yes. It was so much easier to identify that. I think, you know, as we do all these calls on Zoom, it can be a lot more difficult to see what the dynamics are. I, I think agree. you can, I think you can still do it because if, you know, if we're in a room or excuse me, a Zoom room, I'll call it. If we're in a Zoom room with, you know, five people and I ask a good open-ended question, and then I stop and not keep asking questions because I see a lot of people do that. I stop and pause and I see who actually answers. I'm starting to get an understanding of who might have influence in this particular situation. And so the other thing that this is something I think about and I, I coach on this is if I'm on a Zoom call and I ask a question and I watch somebody look up, I mean, you're probably seeing me look up right now because I'm thinking as I look up, um, if I'm watching the 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 facial behavior, facial expressions, I should say, of people, I can tell like who's thinking about what's going on here and who's just like needs to talk. And I'm looking for behaviors, you know, in that kind of situation as well. So yeah, well, that's the dynamic you're looking for. Also inside the room, when someone speaks, are all the other people truly listening to what they said? So you can start to see where maybe the power base lies in the room, right? Exactly. Exactly. So like I said, it was easier in the room to do it, but now there's different techniques techniques you can use in a Zoom room as well that um, helped understand that. It's also the powerful, what I find is the powerful questions that they ask. So sometimes people see something and they don't ask a superficial question. They ask a question that's like three levels down and you think, wow, okay, this person not only gets what I'm talking about, but mm -hmm. they're off to the races on almost how do they apply this or use this. So they're three levels down. That's another indicator that you could be talking to somebody that might be a potential champion, right? Ah, so I need to piggyback on that one because that's that's really good. I think the questions they ask are about the health of the organization. Like how is this going to benefit the organization, not just them personally? So Bingo. to your point, that's that's a, a big one. And and peeling back the onion, you know, a couple of layers, thinking forward. I mean, here's another one. If someone's asking you questions about, question about how, how are we going to implement this? How are we going to make sure that it has staying power? And how are we going to make sure we transform the organization? That's the kind of person I want to potentially connect to. Because I always, I always train on this as well. 
when you're looking for a champion, look for change. Because where there's change in an organization, there's probably somebody who has been put in that position to implement the change who's done it before and done it well. So that's another way to, I know you didn't ask me this question, but that's one thing I think about. Well, it's also because if they're stuck on features and functions and more user type stuff, that's okay once they get that. But to your point, they have to at some point transition to how it's going to benefit the company, the implementation, the risks of all that stuff, the cost justification. Why? Because that's the type of person that can truly talk to the economic buyer and get you to the economic buyer. If they're stuck on features and functions and what it's going to do for them only, you probably have more of a coach than you have a champion, right? Love it. That's so true. Yeah. Annie, one of the things, sorry, Annie, that's my wife's name. Sorry about that. She Annie, does it all the um, time. Sorry, sorry <laughs> about that. Um, one of the things that I see people getting stuck on, I'd love to get your advice. It's like they understand everything that we're discussing right now. They understand the difference between a coach and a champion. They understand what a champion looks like. And what, what they struggle to do, they have a single-threaded conversation. And so they, they realize that they're not talking to enough people, but they don't know how to branch out from this champion, with this champion, into others inside of an organization. It's one of the number one questions that I get is, how do I get wide and deep? Can you give the, our listeners some advice, like these single-threaded conversations? How do we not move away from people, but take our champions to help us get to other places inside of an account? Because it's like, it's very imperative today. Most of these deals are collaborative sales today and software, and we're not selling to one person anymore. So can you kind of give, give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, that's a great one, because I hear that a lot as well. I think the first thing is, is you have to assume that you're calling on multiple people in an account, regardless of whether you have a champion or not. So too many people, like you, like you already said this, John Mack, it's like you, you hook your wagon to one person and, and hope that they you know, take you there. And, and I don't think you should be relying on one person to do that anyway. I mean, it's not fair for them for you to rely on them to do it. Because, you know, one thing we talk about is that these people don't buy for a living all the time, right? So they're learning at the same time that you're working with them. Anyway, so the point is, is that I think the, the earlier you spread out in an organization calling on multiple people, I mean, you know who, who is normally going to be involved in one of your sales. I mean, it's it, for me back in, you know, these days of PTC, I knew there was going to be engineering involved. I knew there was going to be procurement. I knew there was going to be someone who headed up drafting, whomever, right? And so I went out to those people automatically in the beginning, now, so that's one way, right? But in parallel, you should be developing your champion to take, you know, have them sponsor you into. And the only way they're going to sponsor you into other organizations is if they trust you and they know that you're going to provide value, right, when you actually move out in the other organizations. So, but let's go back to if I've actually gone wide in the organization early, and this is, you know, a, a big thing for major accounts, if I've gone wide in the organization early, I actually have knowledge that I can bring back to that potential champion or whomever who's become a champion and say, this is what I see going on in the rest of the organization. That's just more knowledge for them to do a better job of helping their organization. So I think it's two pronged, probably multiple pronged, but go wide early with a lot of different people that you know are likely going to be involved. And then the second thing is continue to develop your champions so they want to sponsor you into these other organizations. Lastly, I'll say this, 
those those folks who are champions, if they're if they have influence and like John Mick and I were talking about with this um, this organization chart, they know who's going to get involved. So let's just sit and ask them. All right, it's likely, this is my experience, it's likely these are the kinds of functional groups that get involved, these are the kinds of roles that get involved. Help me understand in your organization who is going to be, you know, in those kind of roles and how could we, and how can I help you, right, get out and talk to these folks so that I'm making your job easier. I mean, honestly, that's what we're trying to do is help them make their jobs easier. So, right. And just going back to one of the points we talked about a little earlier, but going a little bit deeper is, the reason that that champion has to have a mindset of what's going to happen in the implementation is because no economic buyer is going to buy a product and then be responsible for the implementation and success of that product too. So every economic buyer, and at least in my experience, is looking for who, if I'm going to buy this, who am I going to hold accountable yeah. for the success of the implementation, right? So that's why that person you're talking to has to have that mindset and be asking those questions. Otherwise they're just a coach. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And that's that whole wide thing, right? Cause the implementation isn't about a couple of people. Yeah. Sorry, Johnny, that, or, yep. or that you said in there that I think a lot of people want to find this champion and they, they want to go too fast, but they don't do what you said, Ann. They don't build trust with the person. So that champion is a champion inside the organization, again, because they have influence in the organization and they have a reputation inside that organization. They want to maintain that reputation and they're not going to go talk to the economic buyer unless they trust you. And they fully have vetted you out and your solution out. And it's only at that point, it's kind of a tipping point where they say, okay, I got it. And now I'm ready to take you mm-hmm. and I'm ready to put my reputation on the line and go to the economic buyer. But you have to earn that trust. And that trust doesn't happen overnight. Right. right? Exactly. And I think, again, it's, you know, with all these Zoom calls, it might take a little longer to build that trust, right? Because we're not actually going in and having conversations in a, you know, a conference room, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Let's yeah. drop, let's put a, a dagger in the ground, if we can, or a line in the sand uh, before we go any farther. There's a lot of people that hear this conversation. They're talking about champion. They're just assuming they have a champion. They, I want to get a really good definition from you, Ann. The best definition out there that that everybody can hold themselves accountable to, because I think people actually think they have champions. They actually are not champions. Now, can you give us your definition of what a champion is and why and how you came up with that definition? So, okay. The first thing would be that they sell on your behalf when you're not there. I think that's a really important thing. And I think that, again, we all as salespeople assume that everybody knows how to sell. But that's not, I mean, when you're calling on a lot of organizations, they don't, right? So this person knows how to sell on your behalf or you're educating them on how to do this. They, they, um, They do that when you're not there. I mean, if you think about how much time you spend in a, in a particular account, um, relative to how much time they're there, they're the ones that are really spending the bulk of the time talking to the rest of the organization. So that's the first thing. 
So sell on your behalf. The second thing is there's a personal win. There's some reason, right, that they want to do this. Right. And and again, I find the best champions are the ones that are not just about themselves and the personal win for themselves, but also about the organizational win um, as well. But I mean, if it's if it's they want to get recognized in the the organization, if it's they want to you know be recognized in the industry. If it's they want to get promoted, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that, you know, people might have personal wins. So, and I think you need to understand what is that motivation that they have to, to be able to, to do that. Uh, I also mentioned that, well, I'll say this, champions, in my opinion, provide the bad news. I think too often sales reps, when, you know, when you think about a coach, a coach is telling you all the good things are happening and everything's great. We don't have any problems. And a champion is willing to tell you the bad news. Why? Because they want this, you know, they want to bring this solution into the company and have success with it. So I think all too often when sales reps hear bad news, like this isn't going well or whatever, they, they start to think, well, this isn't my champion. Not Mm. the case. The cases is they're actually thinking about what do we need to do to make sure this does go well. And, you know, the earlier I hear bad news, the better off I am. Yeah. Hey, Cap, I just want to go back to um, add a little something to what Ann said on, you know, defining what a champion is. I think, you know, we talked about how they have influence and that influence. I usually think of that as they have some sort because we talked about the power chart. So I think about that as they have some sort of power in this organization and that where does that power come from is what I've always asked myself. And it comes from what I've seen either real technical respect on a certain subject, like they're subject matter experts, or they have political power. They're just fast risers through the organization. Everybody knows that this person has, has some sort of power, but it comes from political power. So I've seen it manifest itself in those two forms um, when you're looking for for power. And it could be that if it's just plain old technical respect, then it could be because you have like a user champion. But to Ann's point earlier, like you always need a business champion to kind of get you to that economic buyer. Somebody that, because I've seen some champions that rely on somebody else to say, yeah, this technology really works. So that's the user champion. And now they feel comfortable. They understand it enough, but not in detail of the user champion. And then they say, okay, I'm the business champion. I'm taking you to the, to the economic buyer. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the points are so relevant that you both are making. We started the conversation talking about, you know, the danger of being single threaded. You've done a great job of uh, defining, you know, champions. Johnny, you're bringing up the point of, you know, multiple champions is really uh, the world we live in today is really the likelihood of one champion inside of an account is, um, is, uh, less than it used to be. And so now we're, this is not a, I guess the point that I want to make, and I want you guys to confirm, these are not check in the box answers. These are, we're looking for evidence and you find out through the evidence. So you define it as power and influence selling, you know, on your behalf and there's something in it for them. Johnny, you've talked about technical wins and the business influence. The only way that you find that out if you're leading a team. So if you're listening to this and you're a seller, um, this is really, really good advice. If you're leading sellers, 
you have to look for evidence. Mm -hmm. You have to have the sellers tell you, okay, yes, they have power and influence. Okay, what describe for me what that looks like? And Johnny Mac just said, and where does that power or influence come from? The point I'm trying to make is I think so many people go through medic and med pick and (laughs) they do a really, really good job of understanding the concepts, but it's checking the box. It's like, but it's what we're looking for in this discussion is the evidence. Where does it come from and why? Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, there has to be no doubt. You know, there's no doubt, you know, and I always say that, you know, you have a champion when, the sales process has moved from unpredictable to predictable, right? That's so good. Before I have yeah. a champion, I still feel like I'm not in control. And, and when I show up again, I feel like anything could freaking happen. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. You know, a new competitor comes in, a new person comes into the sales, they change the sales process, they change um, the, the, the criteria. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to get control of this thing. And the only way we as salespeople can get control is to get a champion. And once I have a champion and we talk about what's happening and what the, the decision process is, it's now predictable. I don't go to the account wondering what's going to happen next. I love that, John. I never really thought about it. You know, that it goes from unpredictable to predictable. That's actually an incredible point of like sitting in a sales cycle and thinking about what, what's the turning point here. That's really yeah. good. Hey, on that vein, I always think about control and I always say like there could be three people in control, you, the customer or the competitor, right? And in the beginning, the customer is in control because you need all the information. But once you get a whole bunch of information, either you or the competitor is in control. They're going to (laughs) buy. So what's I never knew you to need control. (laughs) (laughs) I need total control. (laughs) And hey, for all of us involved, like. And I want to transition to this, like this. Um, and by the way, these concepts that we're talking about, Anne uh, had just did an unbelievable job of <clears throat> really kind of creating this content. And with John's influence and others' influence at PTC, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Johnny, you've done, I've mentioned it already. If you want more information on these concepts of champions and economic buyers and the how, and then a great story written behind it. I know you don't like me doing this, John, but I can't say it enough. Um, You got to go out and buy the book, Qualified Sales Leader. Um, John McMahon's book, The Qualified Sales Leader, is the number one uh, book by far on this topic. And if you are a leader of sales, if you are leading a company, if you're an investor in a company, um, if you're a seller, these are just unbelievable topics. I, <clears throat> I suggested the book to somebody that reached out to me on LinkedIn yesterday. And they're like, man, that's, you're like the 10th person that told me. And he said, Johnny, I sent that to you. He said, I've already read it twice, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But Ann, let's talk about the genesis of a lot of this. Like the, you know, you moved into sales enablement at PTC and you actually trained me. You trained me on the concept of what a champion was. And I was a brand new district manager. I wasn't an engineer. And I wasn't <laughs> an engineer. I know you didn't know that, but I wasn't an engineer. I, I had never sold software before. And these birds at PTC, they, they, they hired me and they're like, yeah, you're going to go run this, this organization in, in North Carolina and you're going to go recruit people. And, and, I got to tell you, when I first got there, I took my breath away a little bit. And then I went to training 
And you talk about predictable, Johnny, you talked about unpredictable to predictable. The training was so good at PTC. We went 43 straight quarters of never missing our number to Wall Street. I mean, that's over 10 years of accurately predicting the business. And it really all began with an incredible focus on enablement. Can you talk a little bit about your transition from, from leading sales teams and growing sales teams and into, into development? Because at the time, that wasn't probably a typical career path. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. So, um, boy, I'm, I'm just writing down a couple of different things because there's so much <laughs> to talk about. So, why, well, I guess maybe why did I do that? Well, I am happiest when I'm either learning or teaching. It's just, I'm just how, that's how I'm made up. And, uh, and so, I had been in a, you know, I'd done a lot of learning, right, at PTC. And I thought, okay, it's time for me to switch and start helping other people. I mean, we were growing so rapidly, and so, and at the same time, I will say this, you know, I was, ha we were having a family and actually the boys were, I don't know, in their five and three, I guess was about the age. And I was, I was on the road all the time. It was another thing that I needed to get off the road some, so I could be with my family. So anyway, I, I switched over to enablement and it, it was interesting because we had, we had nothing. I mean, we, yeah. we basically had nothing. And so it's like, okay, well, how do you do enablement? I guess I've been in sales. How do you do sales? So, <laughs> so I went out and started looking for, you know, different material to understand what's been done already. And there's a lot of, you know, great material out there. And it was, you know, kind of taking bits and pieces from, you know, different areas. Uh, what I figured out pretty quickly though, is that when I say we have nothing, we did have product training. So we, like every other tech company that I have worked with, they do product training first, learn all about the product, and then let's tell you what the problems are. So we, we flipped that over. And by the way, you don't give yourself credit. You know, you weren't an engineer, but you actually did a phenomenal job of wanting to understand the problems, right, that people were trying to solve. So the, um, the enablement was all about going in and figuring out, gosh, there's so much to talk about, the who, what, when, where, why, how, right? So what is it that we need to teach? And I, I actually went in and said, okay, I was in a situation where I needed to know all these things. So we need to teach prospecting and qualifying and negotiation and closing and problems. So it was all the skills, the ING skills that I thought about, okay, what do we need to teach? What knowledge do people have? To, to John Mack's point, you know, what do, in terms of when you hire somebody, what kind of knowledge do they have? Account knowledge, political knowledge, competitive knowledge, product knowledge, whatever. So what are all the account or excuse me, all the knowledge areas? So we put together the what of what people need to be successful. Now, this is where, and I, I can talk a little bit about this. I, this is where I think some companies have challenges mm. because they take that what and they lay it on top of everybody and say, okay, everybody looks the same. We're going to do it all the same. But I come in with a whole different set of circumstances, right? You came in with incredible business acumen. I came in with incredible engineering acumen. I needed more business acumen. You needed, needed more you know, product, et cetera. So, you take the what, and then you start thinking about the people that you're hiring and which parts of that you need to pull, which levers, right, to help them get to the skills and knowledge that they need. So that's how I looked at it. You know, it's kind of a typical engineering thing. Here's the problem. We don't have any enablement. So what do we do? Let's look at what we need to actually create. And, um, and that led to building the enablement organization. I think, again, at PTC, one of the best things we did, and I see a lot of companies with challenges on this, is 
we pulled people out of the field. And this is, you know, to John McMahon's, um, I, you know, compliment you on this. We pulled people out of the field, put them in enablement, had them do a tour enablement, and, and then they went back out as managers. And I think it's- Can, I, can I have you talk about this for a second? Because I'm glad you brought this point up. I just don't see enough people doing that today. Um, and I'm not knocking enablement, but it's very difficult to, if you, if you, um, if you haven't done what you're asking people to do, and again, I want to be very careful because there's wonderful people in enablement, very talented people in enablement that are able to, to do this, but how do you get somebody to come out of the field is really what I want to talk about. And being that person who comes out of the field to do a tour, like you guys did that fantastic at PTC. I've seen you do it, Johnny. I've seen you do it other places. And then sending those people back into the field as kind of like this rotational tour. Could you talk a little bit about that? And if I'm listening and I'm like, why would I do that? Like, what were the advantages of doing something like that? And what's the impact on your career? Well, if you think about it, I mean, isn't a manager, they're coaches, they're trainers, they're teachers, right? So if you don't know how to do that, uh, uh, the best way to learn how to do that is to go in enablement and figure out how to teach well or how to coach well. And, you know, I think one of the things that it also provides you with is that, you know, I think differently than other people, right? And so it gives you the opportunity to work with lots of different people who think differently so that you start doing that pattern recognition oh, this person happens to be more analytical. This is how I work with them. Or this person, need, you know, happens to be, I don't know, whatever kind of characteristic, I need to work with them this way. So I think that, you know, moving from sales into enablement is the very best way you develop your manager kind of characteristics or coaching skills um, to go back out and do a super job. You know, the problem is, Companies don't want to pull the most successful people out of the field because, you know, they're the producers, right? So, uh, but, you know, in order to scale, you've got, you've got, to, you've got to make that break and, uh, and put those people in. So a couple of the people back to the enablement, and then I'll, I'll be quiet here for a moment. Enablement, we brought in people who had been in the field. Um, one person, you know, works with force management now. And, you know, I just think is a phenomenal guy, Dale Monin. Is awesome. a great example of that. He came out of the field. He worked with me, and then he went over and took over Africa, South Africa. South so <laughs> you know, developed South Africa, right? So um, it it worked incredibly well to to be able to do that. So I I'm kind of straying a little bit, but that's no, no, to your point, though, Ann. They that's that's the learning is you take your great salespeople that know how to sell, and then you put them into you know training and enablement for a year. And they learn how to be great coaches. They learn that people are different. They learn that people learn differently. So even in the training, you know, we used to do, you know, you'd have to get to the whiteboard and draw pictures. Some people learn from seeing pictures. Some people learn are better. You find out some people are better presenters and they hear things differently. We did written tests. Some people do better on written tests than being on the board. Those types of things. And you, people learn in different ways. So it makes you just a fantastic coach when you go back out in the field. And to the point of why companies don't want to do it, it's kind of crazy because if you take a great salesperson, you make them a great coach and now you stick them back in charge of five to seven sales reps. Now you just made five or seven salespeople fantastic. So 
Exactly. It's it's leverage. I always thought it's fantastic leverage. And John, talk a little bit about the two of you, how you really kind of collaborated to make training a like world-class, like one of the things that I remember about, and I, I'm, I wasn't sure I really understood it because I came from a great company. Training was world-class at, at Xerox. And then I came to PTC. And then after I left, um, the, the, the awareness out in the marketplace of what PTC had created through training and development and execution, how do you make a decision that you're going to make that a priority? There's costs involved. There's time involved. John, I think you were doing it. If I recall, we were doing it every quarter mm-hmm. at PTC. We were getting trained on something every quarter. Could you guys talk a little bit about how you kind of, how you collaborated and strategized to make that just world-class? Yeah. And you want to go? You want to go first? <laughs> I'll go first. I've yeah. always thought that, Things are constantly changing. They never stay in the same. So if your product is changing, the market's changing, the competition's changing, your customer's knowledge is changing, right? So if you're not constant and you have new products that are coming out from you and from the competition and customers are getting more and more educated, if you're not constantly training your sales force every quarter to bring them up to date on all those different issues and make sure that they're adapting to the changing environment in which they're selling in, you're, you're just going to go stagnant. It's only going to, you, you're not going to die quickly, but you're going to die slowly. And it's going to have an effect on sales productivity. It's the way that I've always thought about it. And then, Ann, how did you kind of, how did you build an organization that would allow you to do that every quarter? Because there's not a lot of companies that do that, training every quarter. And it was incredible to my development. I, I would say that's probably the one of the single greatest things to my success at PTC was the knowledge and skills that were provided to me uh, on, a, on a consistent basis. Well, I mean, let's, let's back up and talk about, uh, I think too often, this, this is what I see happening. Companies get into trouble and they try to boil the ocean, right? It's like, yeah. okay, let's throw all this at them and see what sticks, right? And instead, and I think we did a good job of where are we having trouble right now? And that's how MedPit came to fruition, right? Actually, it was Medic in the day. But it was, let's actually analyze where are we running into trouble? And in you know, some cases, it was, you know, we're having quarters where deals are slipping because we clearly don't know who the economic buyer is. And, it, you know, we didn't, we didn't call it all that. We, we analyzed it. And then all of a sudden, you know, MedPit came to fruition. But, or, you know, we're losing deals because we don't know what the decision criteria is. And we're going in and doing benchmarks without ever understanding how are they going to measure whether we're doing a great job or the you know, competition is? So I think we did a very good job of analyzing why are deals slipping mm-hmm. and why are we losing them? That's that whole pattern recognition thing that I was talking about earlier. And then we would say, okay, well, this is where we see the bulk of the issues coming right now. Let's focus on this topic and that topic alone, not 10 other topics that you know yeah. just yes. water everything down. That's so it. I, I think we did a nice job of that. And as far as building the organization, I mean, again, I couldn't have done it if I didn't have, you know, folks like John McMahon and, and Dick who believed in this, right? I mean, again, we were pulling people out of the field and, you know, and there was time when someone was in the field and they're like, you know what, it's time for me to go back or enable it. It's time for me to go back in the field. And I could have said, no, absolutely not. We can't lose that person, but we didn't do that. It was time for the person to go back out. They had an impact on a large organization and we're growing at the time where like I talked about Dale. 
He went to South Africa. I mean, like we had nobody there. So he was developing a country or, you know, we had some folks that went to Singapore. So it was time for them to, to go back out. But John was always good at, okay, we need to find, you know, other people to pull in. So you, you can't do that unless the, the organization, the executives in the organization believe in this and, you know, lead from the front in terms mm. of, of supplying the, the people to do it. I love that. Hey, so we're, we're, we're landed on a good topic here of transition for leadership. And with your incredible background, um, you've seen incredible leaders. I know Johnny asked you about um, some of the best seller characteristics that you've seen. Can you share with us some of the great leadership uh, traits and characteristics that you've seen in your career? Mm, boy. Yes, I would say number one is consistency. Uh, and, and I think, you know, consistency develops trust and predictability. It kind of goes back to the unpredictable and predictable that John was talking about. Mm-hmm. So consistency and, you know, people knowing what to expect. So the expectations, um, I think discipline is really important. Um, I think that empathy is, is critical in terms of, you know, understanding what someone is, you know, is, is going through in terms of a, a particular deal or even their own personal life. But probably one of the most important ones is the person knows that they actually have to help people with the how. Hmm. I see a lot of people talking about what somebody should be doing. You should go find a champion. You should call in the economic buyer. You should go talk to procurement. But they don't actually talk about, and this is what we do in a lot of the opportunity reviews, is yes, and as a salesperson, I probably know I need to do that, right? So yes, I know that I need to do that, but how do I go about doing it? And I think the best leaders that I've ever worked with understand the how and can demonstrate it. And if they don't, they go find somebody who does, because they also know that they can't know everything. So they'll bring somebody in and say, okay, you know, work with Anne on helping her understand how right, to do this particular prospecting call or whatever it is. So that's, that's the sign of a, a good leader. I'll give you one more too. I think phenomenal leaders protect their people. I mean, I had to do a lot of managing up at PTC. So, you know, protecting and not because of you, John McMahon, but <laughs> maybe because of That's you. what I was going to say. <laughs> Anytime McMahon came around, I had to protect my people. <laughs> Careful. Careful. No, it's, it's, it's our job, right, to protect. And, you know, I saw, I got to tell you, when I was in enablement, so I, you know, I worked with a lot of managers and I would see situations where they were, oh, yeah, you know, my, they'll say, let's say Joe's the manager and John is the rep. Oh, yeah, John did a poor job on that. Right. And they're blaming the rep. I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're accountable because you're the manager that actually trained them how to do this. Amen. Amen. So um, I think that's another thing is protecting your reps. And the last thing oh, I could go on for, with this for hours, looking in a mirror, like look in a mirror at yourself and say, what am I doing well? And what am I not doing well? And what do I need to change? Too often, it's always about somebody else's issue. So looking in a mirror. Just going back to what you said on the what to do and versus people not showing and how to do things. I always thought of that as, you know, it's like telling a 
drowning man to swim. He's yelling, swim, swim. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, but I don't know how to swim. Like, I need some help here. I need some That's good. Tell me how to do that. You know, not what to do. I know I need to swim, right? And, you know, if, if I added a couple of things, I also think it's being intimate. And I mean by being intimate with the, your different people, you know, and how they're all different. Like you talked about you versus John earlier, you know, different styles of learning, different needs for business versus more engineering process, uh, knowledge that you needed. Understanding that everybody's completely different, just like you have kids, they're all completely different different strengths and weaknesses, characteristics, needs, wants, fears, doubts, insecurities, all that stuff. And the more you know about and the more you're intimate with your people, the better you know, leader you can be. And the, one other thing that I always think about is just you got to freaking listen. You got oh. to turn these things on. And that's what you were just phenomenal. You're a phenomenal leader and uh, uh, listener. And that's what made you a great leader, too. Yeah, because it goes back to that curiosity, right? If you're curious about the individual. So how many times have you all been to a party? This is actually, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm going to tell you this story. (laughs) Maybe I should or shouldn't. (laughs) Um, So so, uh, my husband and I talk about this, Dave, you know, we go to parties and I am literally asking questions the entire time I'm at the party. How many times do you go to a party and you're like, how, how many questions did somebody ask me? Right. Now, by the way, I prefer to listen to other people and talk about them than I do talk about myself anyway. So that's my comfort zone. But it's interesting how going back to being intimate, I have a lot of people walk up to me and they're like, you're such a good listener. Well, why am I a good listener? Because I do a lot of, in the sales terms, discovery, right? Yeah. I'm always asking open-ended questions because I'm curious and interested in, in listening to people. So Anyway, I think it all comes back to the way to be intimate with people is just being interested in who they are and not like this forced, well, tell me about your family, you know? So it's just that natural curiosity thing that goes back to the one behavior to hire. Yeah, and learning that it's not about you, right? when When you move from being single and then you get married and you have kids, you realize it's not about me anymore. And it's the same thing when you're a leader, you gotta realize, hey man, it ain't about me anymore. I think the best advice I ever got along that kids successful or or my team successful, I'll be successful. Anything short of that. I failed. Right. I think the best advice I got when I became a a manager for the first time is somebody said, congratulations, you have lost your right to uh, think about yourself first. And it was really, really good advice. Hey, Johnny, there's, so many topics we could continue to go on and awesome, <laughs> we could keep going. And yeah, we're probably going to have to do a, we're probably going to have to do a part two just on <laughs> medic. Can you imagine if we just did a part two, just on medic, which we you should consider try to doing already. I mean, it felt, felt like this was five minutes. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm just going to do a summary. I'm not going to cut right. us off. I'm just going to take some time to just do a quick summary. If you guys don't mind. So we started off and and Ann was talking to us about some characteristics of great sellers that she's seen. And she talked to us about, you know, intellectual curiosity, what she looked for in people, intellectual curiosity and people that had the ability to understand the people part of selling and the political landscape. We did a little bit of a deep dive in 
power and influence that shows up on Zoom calls and look for people that are talking and moving their eyes as if they're thinking and versus the people that are just, you know, they just have a need to talk is sometimes a really good indication of power and influence. We talked about the challenges of single threaded sales deals and Ann talked about going wide early and then talking about champions who actually sponsor. We did a, a really good deep dive on um, Johnny talking about economic buyers. They're not going to implement. So when we try to make an economic buyer a champion, part of the technical aspect, if you will, they're not going to make a decision to implement. If people haven't made an implementation decision and they have to make a business decision, they're not going to force people to use your software. And that is a deal. That is an understanding that I had from a long, long time with experience of trying to make my uh my uh, economic buyers, my champions. We get into a real specific definition of champion. We talked about looking for evidence of power and influence, selling on your behalf, and then something in it for them. And I gave a plug. I'm going to do it again. Um, there's a wonderful book that's written on this topic of the qualified sales leader by Johnny Mack. And I highly, highly suggest that you run out and get that. If you haven't, if you have read it, reread it because those topics are just so well discussed in there. John talked about making the unpredictable predictable. Um, and you talked about in <clears throat> sales development, companies really having a responsibility of providing knowledge, skills, and then it creates, I'm adding this, it creates a character of an organization. If I could sum up PTC's experience, they provided us the knowledge and the skills on a timely, accurate, and consistent basis. And that company created, the sales organization created a character of really, really professional and qualified and accountable uh, sellers. That's how a great character of an organization can get created. Last topic we talked about was leadership. And you talked about consistency, setting expectations, discipline, and empathy, and then your big your big uh, reveal was, you know, you got to teach people the how, you know, you can understand the what, but if you can't be a good coach and developer of the how, uh, you're really going to be at risk. And then you talked about people that are self-aware and doing a self-assessment. We wrapped up the conversation talking about meeting Johnny, talking about intimacy, which is meeting people wherever they are. Johnny, will you kind of bring us to the home stretch here? Yeah, right, I just Dan. have to say, yeah. those were good listening skills. Yeah. Yeah, see, really well. see, he never gives me credit for that. We always talk about what a great <laughs> listener really Kaplan that is. did that summary? Who was that? <laughs> yeah. Who was I'm that doing man? that every weekend, just for the record. Yeah. I'm I love doing it. that every week. <laughs> love Take it. us home, Johnny. Johnny. Phenomenal. What do you need, a little corkscrew straw for that thing? <laughs> yeah, take, us, take us home, buddy. No one provoked right, the tax, buddy. Rapid and we fire. have this little, cool little section where we just ask some rapid fire questions. Like okay. four or five. You, you good with that? Sure, sure. I, I, well, I think so. If I'm not, I want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could deny tell, you know, talking about one of them if you want. But what's your ideal day off of work? Oh, wow. That's easy. So I'm very physically active. I bike. I play golf. Um, I walk the beach. Um, Preferably with family and friends. I, I like doing all that with family and friends. Uh, but another thing is that, well, I'm actually a, a, an artist as well. So I'm using both oh, sides man. of my brain. Yeah. And painting 
I'm going to a lot of painting classes and painting. So that's another thing that I love. Getting in the flow of painting is, is also a, a great day off. But you did pottery for a long time and um, not trying to embarrass you, but you were in like 60 different stores and around yeah. the country. Shipping yeah. 2000 pieces a year. OK, this is the typical Ann Gary thing. Like, take it on. Big challenge. Take it way too far. <laughs> Ship <laughs> 2,000 pieces a year. Wear my body out and decide, mm, this isn't intellectually stimulating enough. Let's do something else. So wow. that's what happened with the pottery. Well, congratulations on that. Unbelievable. Thanks. Unbelievable. Favorite meal? Thai food. Thai food? Yeah. Okay. That's the first time we heard that, John. Yeah. Favorite movie? Gandhi. Gandhi. Great movie. Fantastic movie. Best concert you've ever been to? Oh, boy. <clears throat> There's a lot of them. I'd say what pops through my mind is John Mayer. Um, oh, wow. John Mayer with the Grateful Dead. Um, yeah. Sting. There's a lot of them on that John one. John Mayer with the Grateful Dead? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He plays with them all the time, yeah. Really? He's yeah. an incredible okay. uh, guitarist. I mean, like. Yeah, I know. That. I didn't know he's playing with guy. the Grateful Dead. Holy smokes. Yeah. years, buddy. You got to wake up there, Cap. You yeah, wake... that's why you're asking these questions, buddy. If they're sports <laughs> related, I'm in. <laughs> I get out of the car and I might as well have been high. The favorite team, the favorite <laughs> player. I'm good. This is more cultured. Go ahead. All right. And last one, Ann. Favorite charity. Do you have a favorite charity? I, I have several charities, that, but the one that's probably my favorite is um, Boys and Girls Club of America. And the reason is I, I just think anything I can do to bring the knowledge and skills that I've been blessed with, like I've, I've had a very great opportunity to learn a lot. If I can take those knowledge and skills back to young people and help them, and I think a lot of people say this, but I'm also interested in taking art into Boys and Girls Club because I think we focus on a lot of other programs for the development of children. I think having the art and being creative, you know, I got that one side of my brain going all the time with the engineering, got to have the other side of the brain going. And I think the more yeah. creative you are, I, I actually heard a kind of a quote that imagination is more powerful than knowledge. And I think that if you can continue to stimulate creativity in our children, then that imagination will take them to places that, that they didn't know they could go. So, so Boys and Girls Club. Yeah, we'll make a show note on that. And so, Anne, as always, thank you so much. You're a star. And I know that we could have, we might have to do round two with you sometime, but. Yeah, let's do it. This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. And I, <clears throat> I can't thank you enough for, for many things. Uh, it would start with giving me a great start for a great outcome at PTC by training me so well. And then for all that you do for our customers at force management, you are just a bright and shining light for, for our company and the customers that, uh, that we work with. So I want to thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the podcast today, taking some time to do that. I know your schedule is pretty full. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for the opportunity, both of you. I really, this was just a ton of fun because, you know, talking about things that we all have a lot of passion about. So I appreciate you letting me come in and talk about some of this. So. You got it. Enjoyed right. it, man. Enjoyed it. Care. And thank you all for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 